MSW Media. Thanks to AG1 for supporting our show. If you want to take ownership over your health, try AG1 and you'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, December 28th, 2023. It's going to be uh, one of those cool shows where I've got a couple of really great interviews. Later in the show, I'm going to be talking uh, with Lawfare's Anna Bauer, and we're going to be talking all things Georgia. But first, we have former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to Mike Pence and very good friend of mine who will also be appearing, by the way, at the MSW Media Gathering in D.C. in April. Please welcome Olivia Troy. Hi, Allison. How are you? Hey, good to see you. You're always done up, ready to go. <laughs> I don't know how I'm like wearing my jam jams and my hair's all up in a weird bun. <laughs> and you're always like ready to go, camera ready. It's the glam tax, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I have my vineyard sweatshirt, but you know, because I like wine. But <laughs> but hey, I do have to tell you something though. I love your hello greeting sometimes because sometimes that when I listen to the pod, it cheers me up when I'm having not a great day, when there's not great news, especially when it comes to Trump. So yes, I just thought I'd give you a shout out for that. It's true. Well, thank you. I, I will say that the greetings gotten happier over the last year or so <laughs> uh, as the news, especially in the justice uh, you know, side of things, has gotten a little bit happier. And I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about a couple of things going on with the Supreme Court. As you know, the Colorado Supreme Court has decided that Donald Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And now this basically what they've said is we're going to stay our own decision here until January 4th, because January 5th is when the Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, has to certify who's on the ballot for the primary. And they say we're going to stay our decision until January 4th if the Supreme Court does not weigh in we will keep him off the ballot. Or no, we will put him on the ballot, right? It's default, he's on right, the ballot. that's correct. And so, I, you know, I'm not sure how the Supreme Court's going to come out on this, but if I'm Trump, maybe I just don't do anything. Maybe I, <laughs> you know, just hope that the Supreme Court doesn't weigh in. But then, of course, there's also the general election ballot. Um, and, so, you know, but other states have decided, like, um, the primary is a party thing. It's not a election thing. Um, other, some other states, considering Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, have been like, well, it's not about whether you run for office. It's whether you hold office. So there's all these kind of semantic arguments. And because these are super textualists here on the Supreme Court, I'm a little worried about how they might rule. I am super interested to see how they go about this case. I think it's going to be, look, it's definitely a historic moment in time, right? I mean, we've never really kind of faced this, I would say before. And I, I just don't know. I have like, you know, I have so many different opinions on this. I, you know, I have heard, I'll be honest, I've heard from some of my like more moderate Republican friends who aren't completely off the deep end, who are concerned because they think that the perception is that we are taking away the will of the voters. So that's one lens, like it should be up to the voters in the end. So I've thought about that. And then I look at the Supreme Court and 
I don't know what they'll do. And uh, what I what I am concerned about is it just seems like bad things somehow help the Trump campaign. Mm. <laughs> so what we right like what bad he did something bad. This is like this is a ruling that you know potentially keeps him off the ballot. Um, you know, I think some are like, okay, this is a step in the right direction, hopefully anything to keep him out of the Oval Office. I'm always in favor of that because I don't think he should be anywhere near the Oval Office. But on the other hand, I feel like it galvanizes his campaign. And I just, I hate the fact that they've just been, I mean, I'm already seeing the talking points. I'm really curious to see how much they've fundraised off of that. They sent out an email about it already. I just wonder how this plays out in the general public. Not that we should fear that in the judicial process because justice should be justice. And, and, you know, there is something to be said here about let's look at the constitution and really make a ruling on this. Right. So, um, but with this court, who, I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to see the betting odds. What are the Vegas odds on this? They've got to be betting on this already. Right. I, I, I would assume so, but yeah, I, I mean, so. that's my concern too, because you know, I've always, I, my first immediate thought is, boy, this Supreme Court really likes to leave elections up to the states. It's how they gutted the Voting Rights Act. It's how they allow people to gerrymander. They really like to leave election administration up to the states, uh, as is contextually outlined in the Constitution. But they are also not the most consistent bunch. They seem to really only go with states' rights or states' administration of certain things when it suits kind of their own conservative agenda. So. I don't know where they're going to end up on this, but here's the interesting thing, right? It was a 4-3 decision in Colorado, but the three judges who dissented only dissented based on local Colorado law. They all agreed unanimously that Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. And so I could see a ruling here from the Supreme Court if they step in fast, um, which I think they will, but I'm not sure if they step in to say, we agree Donald Trump engaged in insurrection, but He's, you know, the president, the office of the president isn't included uh, in the text as it is written of the of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment or yeah, something so the along, technicality. Right. Yes. Or something along the lines of the primary isn't it's not ripe because this is the primary, not the general election. Or, again, something like, uh, you know, we said that the other states ruled that it's it's about holding office, not about running for office. Um, or the whole let the voters decide uh, scenario that a lot of your uh, more moderate Republican friends right. have been uh, talking about. I really don't know how they're going to come down on this or when they're going to come down on this. It's got to be soon, right? You would I think mean, I, so. I would think we're going into the election year. This is a massive issue. Yeah, and I, I, I would you know. I would think so. And then what that ruling does to other states who might want to keep down off the ballot, because if the Supreme Court of the United States rules that the president is not an officer of the United States or whatever, then no other state is going to be able to right. remove him from the ballot. But it also might not portend well for Donald Trump if the Supreme Court finds that he engaged in insurrection. But the Supreme Court might also say, that's not what we're deciding here. We're not going to weigh in on whether or not he engaged in an insurrection. Yeah. We're going to weigh in on that uh, second question that was overturned, you know, the lower court's decision in Colorado was overturned by the Supreme Court of Colorado saying that it was uh, a reversible mistake uh, to rule that he's not subject to or the president wouldn't be subject to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So there's so many legal questions and so many ways they could go with this. Can we talk about something, the elephant in the room, so to speak? Sure. 
Clarence Thomas. Yeah. How does this play out? How does this play out with Janie Thomas? We've seen well, the text messages, the emails. She was involved recused. in six. He recused from an Eastman case uh, this just this past October. What will he do but here? there might be enough votes to do this without him, uh, to, to keep Trump on the ballot without Clarence Thomas. You know what I mean? I just hope this is making him sweat it out at night. I hope it's like keeping him up at night, but I don't think he is. He lacks moral integrity from what I've seen. So <laughs> yeah, I would think bit. he'd be sitting there going, the circles are closing in. This is getting harder and harder for me. And my wife was a total player in all this. And we know that. So anyways, I know. <laughs> Side gossip. Yeah. And that also probably will uh, play a part in the other Supreme Court ruling that has uh, been leapfrogged over the appellate court, or at least petitioned to be leapfrogged of, over the appellate court by Jack Smith in the D.C. federal case. And I want to talk about that and how Clarence Thomas kind of what his role is or what it shouldn't be uh, in deciding that case. But I need to take a quick break. So uh, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages. Everybody, it's AG. You know, there was a time in my life when stress seemed like a constant companion. My energy levels waned. My digestion was suffering as a result. And I searched high and low for a solution. And that's when I discovered AG1. If you've been listening for a while, you know, I've been drinking AG1 for about two years now. When I started drinking AG1 every day, I quickly noticed a big improvement in how I felt every day. And I began feeling tangible differences in my overall health as well. My mornings were brighter. I had a newfound energy, uh, truly an incredible, easy habit to pick up. And that's because AG1 is foundational nutrition. It supports your body's universal needs. It supports gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. My journey with AG1 began when I decided to replace all of my supplements and my standard multivitamin with something better and more effective. Every scoop provides prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes for gut support. All of it introduced me to a world of genuine health benefits. And after I learned about AG1's rigorous testing for contaminants and the experts behind its formula, I became even more uh, of an advocate for it. I recommend AG1 to everyone I know and you as well. Now all my friends and family take AG1 and we've never been healthier. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily and that's why they've been a partner for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and you'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash dailybeans. That's drinkag1.com slash dailybeans. Check it out. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with my good friend, Olivia Troy, uh, again, former Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor uh, to uh, the former VP, Mike Pence. And before the break, you mentioned the elephant in the room. Let's talk about how that, uh, you know, plays in with the the other Supreme Court thing that we're looking at, which is the fact that Jack Smith, you know, Donald Trump filed for immunity. I have total immunity. Presidents are kings. You can't touch me. And Judge Chutkin in the D.C. court, in the district court, said, no, that's ridiculous. It would be uh, antithetical to everything we founded the United States on in the first place. We didn't want a king. You don't have the divine right of kings. Yeah. Uh, and so, no. Again, there's the authoritarian theme going on. <laughs> Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, and especially in his filing to stay the case. He's like, I'm just going to act like it's stayed. I'm not even going to wait for your ruling, Judge. 
she did eventually stay the case. And it is on hold uh, until this particular interlocutory appeal on total presidential criminal immunity is decided all the way up to SCOTUS if they take the case, which I think they will because of the historical importance of it. And they, I think they want to weigh in on it. But here we have Clarence Thomas again. Uh, John Eastman is one of the six unindicted co-conspirators in this case. And Eastman's got a ton of emails going back and forth with Ginny. She arranged buses to the Ellipse on January 6th. Uh, and there have been now official letters on official congressional letterhead calling yes. on him to recuse in this case. Well, so <laughs> <laughs> let's see. In the scale of moral integrity, <laughs> jurisprudence, making decisions, uh, whether it's based on integrity, whether it's based on actual trying to be what a Supreme Court justice is supposed to be in the vision of maybe what I thought when I was perhaps a high school student that came to D.C. on that bus tour with the marching band. And they told us all about these amazing grand justices and the rule of law. Then perhaps he will do the right thing. Mm. And maybe just the justice will recuse himself. So, I mean, how many times, though? I mean, how? I mean, he's so involved in all these things and so connected to everything. Yeah, and we it's don't know why he recused from the Eastman case before. It could exactly. have been that, like, Eastman's lawyer clerked for his buddy. You know, I mean, it could have been something. Maybe they worked at the same law firm together or decided certain cases to... I have no idea. And the justices don't have to say why they recuse. And they don't have to recuse. It's completely up to them whether they... We, there's guidelines, like, you probably should in these circumstances... Uh, but it is ultimately up to the justice. And of course, as we know, there is no uh, ethics uh, guidelines that are uh, oh, yeah. guiding the Supreme Court. They tried Court. to come up with some recently, didn't they? Well, Did they yeah, but I think I saw something like There that. was no enforcement mechanism other than themselves. They're like, well, right. we'll make sure we're doing the right thing. Don't you worry about us. That's great. If you go on the cruise, I get to come and then it's okay. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah. And I know, I know we're interpreting the constitution and I don't understand how to interpret financial disclosure forms, but regardless, you know, we should just let me uh, do my job. N well, don't. you know, I just have to say something about that because uh -huh. when I was going to be my Pence's Homeland Security Advisor, they put me through the ringer on financial disclosure and I was just going to be detailed there. So we went line by line through all of my finances. In fact, I'd actually, I thought it was so interesting and a bit bizarre because I, I've had security clearances and background checks. This was on a whole new level. Uh, mm. So I find it very interesting, sort of the different kind of standards of financial disclosure that sort of seem yeah, to be applied. Yeah, we, we would hire file clerks at the Department of Veterans Affairs that went through more rigorous financial disclosures than the <laughs> Supreme Court justices. <laughs> Now, Trump, Trump has filed his opposition to Jack Smith's petition for certiorari. Uh, because remember, right now, the Supreme Court's not deciding on the merits. They're just deciding whether they're going to take it before the appeals court uh, does, right? That's all they're deciding right now. And so Donald Trump, of course, he couldn't write in and say, I don't, the Supreme Court shouldn't consider this because later on he will want to come back to the Supreme Court and have them decide this. Of course. So what he's done is he's arguing... Basically, slow down is what he's saying. He's like, look, 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 look. This is the most extraordinary, consequential, 
incredible historical case in the history of the universe. And I am one of the most extraordinary men. Like he's just going, going, it needs to be adjudicated slowly. He complained that Judge Chutkin took only nine days to decide that he didn't have total presidential criminal immunity, as if to say that she's not adept enough to make a ruling on this obvious question in nine days. And so he's he's asking the Supreme Court, I want you to decide this, but not now. Let the appellate court go through their thing. And then if you do decide to grant cert, don't do it fast. You know, do it on the regular order of how fast you normally do things. And uh, because this is so important. But then he also argues that Jack Smith failed to show that this was an extraordinary case that required alacrity, right? So he's like, this is extraordinary, but it's not. <laughs> Which is unbelievable, but yeah. yeah. And he also says that the public doesn't really have an interest here. It's not really about public interest. It's about political interest. And then, of course, he argues that everything that he did up to and including January 6th is part of his job. It's within the outer perimeter of, of uh, his position as president, which is honestly ridiculous. Um, but he still has to have Pretty an underlying absurd. argument here. And so I, I am now, unlike the other Supreme Court Colorado case, I am 100% sure that the Supreme Court will not grant him presidential immunity in this case. I just don't know when. Well, and I think that they'll do everything they can. I, I have thought this from day one of of the past few years on everything, that they will do everything they can to slow the process and 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 do everything they can to obstruct it and really slow the timeline on it when it's convenient for them, possibly, right? Especially since we're going to a presidential year. Now, in other things, right, they've been like, expedite, expedite. We need to move forward on this, um, which is so classic Donald Trump and this this group of people. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, the facts are the facts on this case, I think. Um, he knows, everybody in that circle knows that the evidence is damning. Um, and uh, we've got Mike Pence as a, a key witness to many of these things. Um, and someone that he directly really ordered and directed to, to get in this whole entire process. Um, and, and he, at the very end of the day, decided not to. So, um, so, you know, I think, um, man, the Supremes are going to be busy and I'm not talking about the awesome music group either. Um, it's like going on <laughs> and the there rest is. of us, I mean, they have a lot to decide. Nail biting, nail biting though, because, uh, they're kind of, un they're, they're unpredictable. I mean, you know, they're inconsistent. Between a lot of the things that said they're inconsistent. Yeah. And that's the problem. That's the trouble, right? Like with Roe, they just threw stare decisis out the window. So they're very, they're just very unpredictable. Um, and, and, but, but I am 100% sure that they will not grant him total presidential immunity. That's just silly. That just completely, I mean, by Joe, by Joe Biden wouldn't have to leave office. Well, the president that it would set would be insane. <laughs> like, Judge Ludig wrote an amicus brief in this with like 24, 25 other um, officials and, and politicians going back five presidents 
and and said, hey, forget the whole argument about whether he was within his official acts or even if a, a president is a king. If you do this, if you grant him immunity, you're basically gutting Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the Constitution that says the president serves a four-year term. The end. It's as simple as that. If you grant him immunity, we no longer have four-year terms. Biden can just stay in forever. And of course, Kamala Harris can just throw out electoral votes and decide to stay in office and there wouldn't be any criminal retribution or check on that. Um, and so, you know, it's it's unfortunate for him that a Democrat is currently in the White House because if this happens, he <laughs> can stay. But I also want to kind of set everybody's mind at ease a little bit to um, if they do slow this down uh, and, and muck it up and push the trial back, I still think it'll go before the election. But even if it doesn't, Alvin Bragg is ready to go in March. Stormy Daniels yeah. could ride up on a pale horse and just kill this whole thing for everybody. And I think that that's fantastic. <laughs> Actually, that would be the perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> if I were writing this in a Hollywood writer's room. <laughs> yes, this would be it. Yeah. So he's ready to go in March. He hasn't moved his trial date. Still there for the, I think, March 25th or March 26th or something like that. I think that probably this trial, I think, Supreme Court will quash the immunity thing and get that out of the way and say, no, no way. And then there's going to be a, another month or two that has to be made up for the stay that's put on now to get through some of the SEPA stuff, because there is actually some classified document documentation in this DC case. And, you know, it's basically the classified ICA assessment of the election interference in 2016. Of course, Trump wants all underlying classified documents uh, based on that, uh, he has said in his motion to <laughs> compel discovery, which is the funniest thing I've read read in a while. But even if this does get pushed back, I think we're looking at April, May. And then, of course, we all know that the documents case isn't happening in May. Yeah, I don't see that happening. <laughs> no. And also, I mean, uh, his reliability with classified documents is he doesn't have the best track record, as we know. So uh, yeah. And what are your thoughts yeah. about that as a counterterrorism uh, expert? Because it has to have chilled our partnerships with Five Eyes and, and other folks uh, and other agencies around around the world. It really must have done some severe damage. His, you know, Donald Trump's um, handling of classified information really All had to have done some severe damage to, did you see that in while you were in the, you know, working at the White House? Because this goes all the way back to that even before, but the Oval Office meeting, giving up Israeli intelligence with, uh, you know, the, the Russian. Oh, that sent shockwaves through the community. Uh, yeah. So mm -hmm. I imagine that made everybody's job, especially in counterterrorism, a little bit more difficult. Well, it was just, you just didn't know what he was going to say. I mean, he didn't know it's like he didn't know where not to cross the line. So, I mean, it was, you know, he could have a very, very sensitive document in front of him and he could go off and repeat it to someone because that's just how Show it to Kid Rock he carried what? himself. Right. I mean, yeah. And, you know, and Kid Rock was in the White House. I did see him. Uh, but, but like, I so was Kanye. But anyways, that's a different story for another day. Mm. Um, but I just think, I, I think it's just so... Um, it's 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 just so embarrassing as well, and it's so damaging on an international scale because I I think it, it, I think it also damages us in our status 
with the community as well, right? I mean, can you imagine like what what must the Brits be thinking? We coordinate with them on a lot of things. We have such a close partnership with them. And I can only imagine like what the British intelligence services must be thinking of what information is in those operations that implicates us and other partners. I mean, that is why it's so scary. I can't imagine like, especially this Russia, this Russia raw intelligence finder that I just can't, I, I can't get over. I know a lot of people aren't talking about that, but I can't tell you how disturbing it is because that is the most sensitive of sensitive information. And it just seems like nobody knows where it is, right? Whether it's in Mark Meadows' fireplace in ashes and the embers, whether it's in Putin's office now, but just thinking about all the different international partners that are wondering, like, are our people in danger? Are our operations now uh, sort of uh, derailed because our information, our sources and methods, the way we collected the information and who we did it with, that's all out there potentially. That's what's in documents like this. And that's just unbelievable because how would you ever trust us again? I mean, I think, you know, Biden has, you know, obviously tried to boost our credibility, but for long-term relationships and some of these operations, it took so many years to really establish, there's got to be doubt, right? And they're looking at us like, America, like, you're better than this, we thought. Right. But he remains the front runner on the GOP side. So <laughs> it's, that makes it, I think, that's, that's the other layer of this, right? Is that they're watching this, they've seen what happened, they've seen how they mishandled classified information, and yet they're also watching him still remain in the picture, so I, I mean, it's disturbing on many letters. That that's that takes my breath away because you know I I you know I interviewed Miles Taylor on C-SPAN Book TV, and he has this whole thing in his book about the price of dissent, right? The price of coming out and talking, uh, and he gives this real basic econ one hundred and one lesson. He's like, how do you lower the price of dissent? You increase the supply. So I am calling on all my Republican colleagues. Yes, talk, speak out. Uh, Jessica Denson got the NDAs lifted. So everybody talk, like tell us. And, and, and we have a handful, we've got you, we've got Liz Cheney, you know, we've got a handful of people who are willing to speak out, but it's not nearly enough. And the fact that he's now pulling Mein Kampf shit during rallies uh, over and over so again and awful. doubling down on it. Frightening. And still the Republican Party is enraptured. I don't understand it. Well, and to your point, these uh, the things that he has been doing, especially more recently in these rallies, is so incredibly dangerous because it's also uh, creating a following of those philosophies on a whole different level, right? And so there probably are people in these rallies who have no idea uh, what he's really talking about, but they're going to go and they're going to follow that and they're going to parrot it and they're going to repeat it and they're going to follow in his footsteps. And that is what's so fundamentally dangerous, right? Just like, just his, like his statements, I don't even want to repeat them about, about immigrants. We've seen what that leads to. We've seen that, that anti-immigrant great replacement theories, things like that. Those comments have been cited by shooters and they have been posted on social media right before they carry out an attack, whether it's the Pittsburgh synagogue, whether it's El Paso, the Walmart, Buffalo. I mean, we know that this has real consequences and yet there he is. And he has one of the biggest microphones and he every day goes out and pushes this out and he's doubling down on it. It's only getting worse. 
Yeah, and that's going to be used as evidence against him in, in the D.C. trial to show intent that he knows that this is the kind of violence that follows his rhetoric and does it anyway. Oh, he knows exactly what he's doing. Oh, I mean, yeah. they could put, well, um, probably not Cash Patel because he's not known for his truth telling, but they could put so many people that have worked in his inner circle, especially around him, his cabinet and everything. And they would, they all know, they all know that he is calculated in what he says and he knows they know what happens when he says things. We've, we've watched it. Well, hopefully he will be a convicted felon, uh, hopefully before the um, Republican National Convention goes off on July 15th. Those are my hopes. I hold those hopes and we'll see what happens. Um, but thanks for uh, joining us today. I look forward to seeing you in April uh, for our our, um, our thank you celebration to, to our patrons. Uh, it's going to be great to see you again. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited. I'm excited to meet people. They're seriously, listen, our listeners, the coolest of all. In fact, I should tell you, listeners, maybe you didn't know this, but when we went on our tour, every single venue was like, your audience is by far the coolest, best, nicest audience we have ever dealt with in the history of this venue. So you're going to have a great time. We're all going to have a good I time. I love that. I hope I'm cool enough. <laughs> Dude, me too. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I am a recovering Republican, so, you know, I'm still <laughs> I'm re- trying to find my way and hang. I'm a recovering Catholic. That explains all the tattoos. Anyway, thank you so thank you so much for joining us. Everybody, we're going to take a quick break, but stick around because right after uh, the break, we're going to talk with Justice Correspondent for Lawfare, the incredible Anna Bauer. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm really happy to be joined today uh, by my friend. She came on and helped us out, me and Pete Strzok, on the Cleanup on Aisle 45 show a little bit ago. She's a legal fellow and the court's correspondent for Lawfare, an incredible reporter down in Atlanta. Please welcome Anna Bauer. Hi, Anna. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today because so many things have... <laughs> so many things are happening. And I wanted to really kind of get into the legal weeds a little bit on what happened with Mark Meadows and his bid to remove his case from Fulton County, Georgia to federal court. And the 11th Circuit, I believe, heard this, which is a very conservative circuit. And Judge Pryor, who is the chief judge of the 11th Circuit, who is a very good buddy of of Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and a very conservative judge at the 11th Circuit wrote the opinion. I, w- I wanted to get your thoughts on how the hearing went and and kind of after we sort of, you know, after I was following what was going on on your Twitter feed with the hearing, I was like, there's no way that this is going to get removed. And that that's basically what happened. Talk a little bit about it. Right. So if people remember, it, because there's been so much that's been happening that it's hard to kind of keep up, but Just to give everyone a little bit of a refresher, Mark Meadows, who's been indicted in that sprawling racketeering conspiracy in Fulton County, uh, he he sought pretty much immediately to move his state criminal charges to federal court. He wanted the federal forum, a federal jury, a federal judge. And he used this statute. It's 28 U.S.C. 1442. Uh, that basically allows uh, people who are federal officers to, you know, remove these state criminal prosecutions to federal court. Judge Steve Jones in the Northern District of Georgia rejected that request after Meadows uh, testified for, you know, three hours about the scope of his duties uh, because he needed to, you know, prove up this uh, argument that he was making that 
He had been acting within his role as chief of staff of the White House at the time, uh, and that all the things kind of in the indictment basically were within the scope of his employment as chief of staff. Judge Jones said, no, uh, you know, you weren't acting under the color of your office. Uh, I basically sent him back to state court. Uh, Meadows then appealed that decision to the, as you said, quite conservative 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. It's a three-judge panel who heard oral argument on the matter as Meadows sought to appeal. Uh, It was Judge Pryor, who's a Bush appointee and, as you said, is very well known amongst conservative judges. He's one of those judges who Uh, Whenever he speaks, conservative judges listen. He's very well respected um, and he's especially very well respected by some of the most conservative judges on the Supreme Court, including Clarence Thomas. Uh, Judge Pryor's decision or decisions are usually a pretty good proxy for what uh, Clarence Thomas will will think about something. The other two judges on the panel were Judge Rosenbaum and Judge Abudu. Uh, Rosenbaum is an Obama appointee. Uh, Judge Abudu is a Biden appointee. Uh, so we kind of had, you know, a mix of, of judges there across the, you know, uh, ideological spectrum. But uh, they they came together on this decision and had a unanimous decision in which they agreed with the district court judge saying that uh, Mark Meadows cannot remove his state criminal case to federal court. What's interesting, though, is that they came to a slightly different reason why, uh, you know, their their primary reason that they made that was not something that the district court judge decided is that the the statute just doesn't apply to former federal officers. So people like Meadows, who have already left federal office, they they made the argument that, in fact, if you read the text, they had this kind of, you know, really textualist perspective uh, saying that if you read it, it doesn't say anything about, you know, officers who have have left their federal office. It is just, you know, people who are currently in federal office who are prosecuted and then could remove the case to federal court. But importantly, they also went ahead and set out some alternative grounds. And in that respect, they agreed with Judge Jones saying that Meadows did not act within the scope of his office. They said that, you know, challenging uh, valid election results and campaigning on behalf of your boss is basically not within the, the scope of the duties of chief of staff. And, and that's a really, really important uh, signal coming from Judge Pryor, who wrote the opinion, because, again, he is one of the court's most staunch conservatives. So it, it's something that I think uh, Mark Meadows We don't know yet if he's going to appeal to the Supreme Court. He very well could. But looking at this opinion, I I think that it's 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 very I think it'd be very difficult for him to, you know, win on appeal. I I think the court is wrong. In my opinion, my the court is probably wrong about that first part of the The former. Right. The former officials. Right. Because the the it kind of goes against the whole policy reasons that the statute was enacted in the first place to, you know, guard against uh, chilling the, uh, you know, functions of a federal officer who, you know, is is worried maybe about a state court prosecutor prosecuting them for carrying out unpopular federal laws. 
But I still think that having the fact that they put in those alternative grounds as saying that, well, in any case, it doesn't matter because Meadows acted outside the scope of his duties. Again, a super, super strong signal and important, too, because we've got all these immunity defenses that are I was going to be ask. raised. Yeah, exactly. Like Trump just filed mm-hmm. with the Supreme Court uh, for, you know, Jack Smith's sped up or expedited uh, petition for for cert for the Supreme Court to hear his immunity defense. And his main argument is, well, first of all, slow down because it's really important and you shouldn't go fast. But also saying that I was acting within the outer perimeter of my duties. And for Pryor, who's a friend of Thomas, very respected by the, the conservatives on the Supreme Court, to say, even if you disagree with me saying that this doesn't apply to former officials, you as an executive branch employee uh, have nothing to do with administering elections. And, th- you know, that's up to the states. And then further with the Colorado Supreme Court ruling saying that states have to decide their own administration of elections, that's also going up to the Supreme Court. So they're all sort of kind of integrated into this Meadows ruling that comes from written by Pryor about the fact that electioneering is not within the scope of your job as an executive branch employee, you know, you, they, you don't even have to take the additional step to say overthrowing the government isn't part of your job. You, you just you you have nothing to do with not with elections, with federal elections. Those are administered by the states. So that bolsters the Colorado argument. So if this is, I think, has implications far reaching beyond just not letting Meadows have his, you know, case removed to federal court. Right, exactly. And remember that the kind of issues you've just discussed are the ones that have already been raised. But in Fulton County, we expect that there will be a very similar, uh, you know, presidential immunity motion raised by Steve Sadow, Trump's defense counsel. I would expect that Mark Meadows, even if he's in federal court or state court, that he would raise some kind of supremacy clause immunity defense. He has kind of raised that as a part of the elements that he has to show within his removal request. So I I certainly think that this is a very impactful decision, not just for, you know, the the outcome in the removal action, but the kind of knock on effects or influence that Judge Pryor writing this opinion kind of has on any future forthcoming immunity defenses in the case or any of these other kind of defenses that have been raised uh, in other cases that are related. Uh, So it is it's a really big deal. um, And I think that it's important for people to, you know, appreciate that it's it's not just a big deal because of the denial of of Meadows uh, removal, but for the kind of, you know, communicative value of Judge Pryor making this statement in that opinion. Yeah, fully. Do you think Fonnie Willis filed a motion. Uh, I guess she indicated she she would like to start this trial in August of next year. We don't know what's going on with the May documents Mar-a-Lago case, but it's probably not happening in May. Um, <laughs> and so maybe that sort of puts everything on hold. But she also indicated, I think, earlier this week that she's willing to go sooner. Do you th- have we heard anything? I, I, I on, I'm asking because I can't remember any indication from Judge McAfee about the trial date. I think he said he wasn't going to decide on this for a while, though. Yeah, he he has he has said that he you know it's not 
time that he needs to decide this question. Uh, at the time, you know, it, it wasn't something that was really scheduled for argument at this mammoth, uh, like, marathon, hours-long hearing that we had a few weeks ago in Fulton County where he was uh, deciding a number of other issues, but it ended up coming up. Trump's team obviously doesn't want to go to trial before the 2024 election at all. Um, and then Fonnie Willis suggested August, even though they'd previously suggested March, but some, you know, the January 6th federal case and then also the documents case has kind of changed that uh, schedule. So they asked for August. In my view, I think that they kind of missed an opportunity to go ahead and lay the groundwork with Judge McAfee at that hearing of saying, you know, we want August, but there's all these signs and indications that the federal cases might have a little bit, you know, there might be some flexibility or or some delays there. So if we can you know, maybe you should wait it out. We'll see what happens. And we're ready to go in March or in April or May or whatever, if if we can. Um, I don't know why they didn't do that. Um, and, and it may be that because there's some concern about, you know, the Fulton County indictment was the last indictment that came about. And uh, the federal cases, if Fulton County starts presenting its case before the election, they estimate that the case in chief will take four months. That doesn't include jury selection. And that also doesn't include the defense's, you know, rebuttal evidence. So there may be some concern amongst Fulton County prosecutors that if they ask to, you know, go ahead and go forward while these other cases are being delayed, it could actually end up affecting if any of those federal cases go at all before the election and just kind of, you know, so there might be a propriety kind of thing there where they want to respect the fact that these other indictments came first, that it's, you know, the federal government, like that kind of thing might be going on behind the scenes. I don't know. Um, but we'll see what McAfee does. I, I think that he seemed to really be grappling with some of the arguments that Steve Sadow was making about uh, how close August would be to the election and how it would impact the campaign. Um, but he's also a judge who doesn't really wear his uh, cards or show his cards. You know, he he has a pretty good poker face. He's very fair from what I've seen. And I think that he will be very thoughtful in whatever decision it is that he does end up making. Yeah. And there are other deadlines, too, that have to be considered before that the trial date, too. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. But I have to take a quick break. Um, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. We are talking with the court's correspondent, uh, legal fellow for Lawfare, Anna Bauer. And I, I mentioned uh, before the break, I wanted to talk about another deadline. And that's the plea deadline. Because I think that that's really important. Now, Fonnie Willis has said she expects that the number to be whittled down and there might be more plea agreements. And she said that we usually see those more after all of the pretrial motions have been exhausted. And, you know, people can't get out of whatever it is to get their, you know, case dismissed or et cetera. I think the current plea deadline or she's asking, I don't think it's even been set, but I think she's maybe asking for June or something like that based on an August trial date. That's a long way. It was long ways away. Yeah, it is a long ways away. Uh, so she she wanted a June fi final plea date before that August uh, uh, trial date. 
And the idea is that that is the last kind of date that there could be a negotiated plea. So in Georgia, you can have negotiated pleas. That's where that's where, you know, either the prosecutors go to the defense or the defense go to the prosecutors. They work it out. They come to an agreement and then they go before the judge and say, judge, we've we've come to this agreement. Like, we hope that you accept this this agreement we've worked out, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then another thing you can do, though, is that you can just as a criminal defendant, you can go into the judge and say, I want to plead and, you know, make your case as to why the judge should give you X sentence or Y sentence uh, and just hope that the judge kind of, you know, is sympathetic to your case and, and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, So the idea behind this final plea date would be that this would be the last date that they could enter any negotiated pleas. And that after that date, uh, the state would, you know, if there was any kind of thought by the defendants to just go without a negotiator and go before the judge to ask for a plea, the idea would be that the state would then recommend the maximum sentence under the law. And of course, that's something that the judge takes into account uh, when there's a non-negotiated plea is, you know, what the prosecution is recommending in terms of the sentence. So that is something that, you know, a lot of defendants are going to take into consideration is, oh, oh no, after this date, like they're asking for the max. And that's that's really scary for a lot of defendants for uh, reasons that I think are clear, um, especially in this case where some of the sentences could be quite severe. So I, that's what's going on with that. I will say, though, that Judge McAfee, it was he kind of, uh, you know, just mentioned it offhand and has not handed down an order about it. But my understanding and to my memory from that hearing a few weeks ago, he he made a comment that he's unlikely to, you know, a, as a part of an order, order that there is a final plea date. He did say, though, that, you know, prosecutors are welcome to kind of let defense counsel know that they have their own internal kind of, you know, final plea date deadline. And that after that date, uh, they're not they're going to be, you know, not accepting negotiated pleas and that kind of thing. So so I don't think that we'll see any movement from McAfee there, but it's certainly something that uh, that the prosecutors could just go ahead and, you know, tell defense counsel, okay, here's the date that is our last date. And look, Allison, we're going to see more pleas. It's just a question of when. As you said, there's uh, there's a lot going on now with people wanting to get through their dispositive motions. They they want to see if there's anything that, you know, Judge McAfee or maybe if they get an appeal, an interlocutory appeal, the Georgia appellate courts might be able to, you know, throw out some of some of these charges, that kind of thing. They want to go through all of that before they make a decision on whether or not to plea. Uh, So I think that we're going to just we're in a holding pattern right now, basically, while some of those uh, dispositive legal issues are are worked out. And as Judge McAfee makes some of those decisions and also, you know, I it's just very normal that when you get closer and closer to a trial, that's when people start really, you know, pleading out and and because they get nervous. There's also an element of sometimes that's when defense counsel starts doing like mock jury kind of uh, practices and they really get a better sense of what a jury in Fulton County is going to think about their case. 
Um, and so then they might make decisions based on that as well. So it's just a question of when, but I, I feel very confident that there will be more pleas as, as the year goes on. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I can see, um, Judge McAfee's hesitance to talk about trial dates at this point, given that there's so many more that (laughs) that have to be considered right now. Dudes indicted in four jurisdictions, uh, and, you know, a lot of the people indicted in Fulton County are unindicted co-conspirators up in D.C. I mean, it's just it's it's all over the place. I wanted to uh, pivot a little bit and talk about um, Rudy, because uh, the thing that, that prompted this is there there was just some breaking news uh, coming down that, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this in depth on, on other shows. But uh, Judge Beryl Howell has lifted the stay on the judgment for for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and said you can you know go after it immediately and there'll probably have to be a a down payment uh placed um called you know which is considered a bond on his 148 million dollar settlement and and it r- reminded me that you had when 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 you were on cleanup on L45 with us we talked about some things that were missing from the GBI report which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and something else has come up since then and it has to do with Rudy Giuliani and I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because it kind of helps with some of the timing of some of the other meetings that Rudy was taking part in. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? Right. So I, I, as we talked about when I joined you guys on cleanup, uh, we obtained this copy of uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation report into the Coffee County voting system breach, which is one prong of this conspiracy, this very sprawling uh, racketeering conspiracy that Fulton County prosecutors have alleged. Uh, and and one of the individuals who is separately charged with discrete crimes uh, in relation to the Coffee County voting system breach is a woman named Kathy Latham, who is also one of the fake electors uh, for the state of Georgia in, in 2020. She was, you know, seen on camera leading in this uh, forensic computer forensics team that had been paid for by Sidney Powell to go down to Coffee County uh, and to make forensic copies of the voting systems there. So keep that in mind because it relates to what we ended up finding out about Rudy Giuliani. In this piece that I wrote, we were kind of critically analyzing the Georgia Bureau of Investigation report and. And uh, for all the reasons that I discussed with you and Pete, but also kind of looking at what they omitted and what they didn't find. Um, And I think one of the big pieces of it that they didn't really seem to connect uh, is this uh, trip that Kathy Latham ended up taking, you know, in the weeks before the breach to Washington, D.C. She was she went up to D.C. in in mid to late December uh, as a part of a kind of conservative tour group. She was there with people like Juanita Broderick, who um, is, you know, a right wing personality, is the, the woman who had accused Bill Clinton of, of rape. And and then, you know, some other prominent conservatives were on this trip. They stayed at the Willard Hotel, which is the you know base of operations of the legal arm of the Trump campaign at the time, including people like Rudy Giuliani and Bernie Carrick. And, and then we also found some social media posts that uh, in which Kathy Latham says that she met with Ru- Rudy Giuliani on that trip. 
based on what we were able to find out, it seems that the date of that meeting was December 17th of 2020. Hmm. Uh, And that is important because it was the very next day that there was this unhinged White House meeting in which, according to various depositions before the January 6th committee, uh, you know, Sydney, they, there was one group that tried to get Sidney Powell appointed special counsel and then these executive orders to seize voting machines. But then as an alternative, Rudy Giuliani proposed voluntary access to voting machines and and in Georgia. And then, it, you know, we also found the very next day after that meeting, Rudy Giuliani went on Steve Bannon, Bannon's podcast and was talking about, you know, how the campaign wanted access to voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. So there seems to be this sequence of events that is at least something that any reasonable investigator would be interested <laughs> in learning more about. Um, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation just did not mention it in in their report. They did not seem to be aware of it, per- per- perhaps. Um, and so I, I think we found that to be something that was troubling um, but if if folks are interested, I suggest reading the piece in full because there's a lot more details there that I think are interesting that the the GBI missed. Yeah, it is a great piece, um, and I, I recommend everybody read it. Um, we'll 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 see if we can include a link in our show notes to that piece. Now to to go from Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss to uh, Trevion Cootie, when it, the news got out about the Instagram Live uh, video. Uh, everybody was pretty certain that there would be, you know, motion in three, two, you know, that that Fonnie Willis would file a motion to have a hearing about potential bond violations, much like what happened with Harrison Floyd when he posted photos of and sort of sideways came at Ruby Freeman. But we didn't see any of that. And Fonnie Willis, uh, I believe in an interview, said the DA is patient uh, when asked about uh, Trevion Cootie. And now Trevion Cootie's lawyers, just hours after she posed, given the middle finger with uh, Jacob Chansley in in Scottsdale at their uh, AmFest or whatever the fuck that is, uh, her lawyers dropped her in Fulton County. Now, I personally have seen lawyers drop clients, not personally, but like as, as I've been following the Trump Chronicles for the last six years, either they're thinking about cooperating and they need a new set of attorneys that are better at that kind of a thing, or they're going to, you know, or plead, or maybe new charges are coming. Uh, so they need a different kind of lawyer, you know what I mean? Like a different flavor of lawyer because the, the case is about to change. Or sometimes the client is just a huge pain in the ass, or they, you know, or they don't pay like Rudy, like he's lost a million lawyers because he doesn't pay his bills. What is your sense of what's happening here with with the Trevion Cootie situation? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I get the sense there there's uh, a, a reporter who's been covering the Fulton County case for the messenger uh, who in this messenger article, they were able to get in touch with uh, Trevion Cootie's attorneys and they had some really great reporting and quotes in there from the attorney who seemed to be implying that it, it was more of a client management um, issue. It, uh, you know, they made some somewhat vague, but it seems to be relevant uh <laughs> Quotes about, um, you know, if you are going to represent someone, you need to have a client who listens to you and you need to get paid. And 
those kinds of things that they were saying that they were making more general statements, but it seemed to be referring to the current situation. So, I mean, if I had to guess, I, I, I would think that it has more to do with, you know, the client relationship and client management side of things. But I also would not rule out the idea that there could be you know, either still a bail revocation motion or potentially new charges uh, against Miss Cootie. You know, I don't think that. Well, I will say that there's there's recently an, an interview that Fonnie Willis did with the Atlanta Journal Constitution. And in that interview, when she was asked about, you know, why haven't haven't prosecutors moved to revoke bond? She made this comment of, you know, the district attorney is patient. I don't want to read too much into that because I don't know whether she was she meant patient with respect to seeking to revoke bond or patient in the sense of they're developing um, a new case and potentially going to go before a grand jury in Fulton County at some point to to seek new charges. Um, so I, I, I again, I'm not sure I don't have like a real gut sense right now of which one of the two, but I definitely would not count out the idea that there could be new charges for Travion Cootie. Interesting. Well, we, we will keep an eye on it. And the best way to do that is to follow Anna Bauer uh, on social media and um, definitely check out that story about the Georgia Bureau of Investigations report covered by you at Lawfare. And you you guys do a podcast too, don't you? We do. The Lawfare podcast. Uh, we also have a podcast called Lawfare No Bull, where you can listen uh, to uh, to unfiltered audio of all of the Fulton County hearings. So uh, if you're looking for a place to listen to that audio, I, I think that it's a really useful resource. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And uh, everybody, thank you for listening today uh, to the great uh, Olivia Troy and, of course, Anna Bauer. I'll be back in your ears tomorrow. You don't want to miss the interviews I have lined up for you. I will talk to you then. Until then, please take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your family. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>